Hello and welcome to Canada Reads American Style. I'm Shauna. And I'm Rebecca. And today we are really excited. We have a wonderful interview we know coming up with Tanya Talaga. And Tanya has written Seven Fallen Feathers and All Our Relations. And we want to welcome her on our chat today. Thank you, Tanya. Buzoo. Thanks for having me. So the first thing we want to just jump into because it's what's on everybody's mind right now, but how are you doing through the pandemic? Thanks for asking that question. I'm okay. You know, at this moment, I've never really been busier or it feels like it anyway. I had a number of projects on the go and combined with a lot of speaking across Canada concerning um, both of, of my books. And so when everything sort of ground to a halt the second week of March, it was kind of like the brakes being slammed, you know, on on part of, well, on my entire life in a way. It was just like this grinding to a halt. And I have to say for the next few weeks, it took a while to get used to the new normal. You know, I don't think we're, any of us are really used to it yet, but it was tough sort of trying to wrap my head around what was happening. I spent a lot of days, you know, reading and thinking and kind of staring out the window, to be honest with you. And it was hard to focus. And then I realized, oh my goodness, I have so many projects that I have hard deadlines for, I just have to sort of get at it. And that's, that's sort of where I am right now. I'm in the middle of uh, just before you guys called, I was writing uh, the fourth script for uh, our new Audible podcast. It's called Seven Truths, and it's going to be out in September. Yeah, we'll a- I'm going to ask a little bit more about that a little bit later. But yeah, I'm really excited about that. I can't wait for that. The first question we have really is, can you tell us a bit about your career path leading up to your books being published? What was kind of, what have you been doing for the most of, you know, most of your life career-wise? Who am I and where do you come from? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, uh, for most of my working life, my career life, uh, I've been a journalist. I was a journalist at the Toronto Star, which is Canada's largest newspaper for about 23 years. Long, long time. I started in uh, 1995. I like to tell everybody I started when I was 10 years old. (laughs) Thank you for laughing. (laughs) (laughs) I always wanted to be a writer. I always wanted to be a storyteller. And I didn't know how I would be able to support myself doing that. And to be quite honest with you, I kind of fell into journalism when I was in university. I went to the University of Toronto and it was there that I realized that I could be a journalist and actually earn money telling stories and talking to people for a living. And so I was lucky enough to get a job at the Star and I I stayed there for a long time. I eventually transitioned from from there to being a a full-time author and speaker and storyteller. So that's that's what I do now. So do you consider, when you talk about storytelling, do you consider that both fiction and nonfiction? And is there fiction in your future? Thanks for that question. It's a really good one. Uh, you know, I when I say that I'm a, a storyteller, I mean an Indigenous storyteller, I mean a person who brings stories from our communities, the truths from our communities, 
out to the public. And this, those stories that I tell are, uh, are truth. I write so far, both of my books have been nonfiction. Uh, the third book I'm working on is actually nonfiction as well. You know, I love, I love reality. I love telling the stories of here and now and the past and in, um, in all of North America, all of what we call Turtle Island, the past hasn't been taught correctly. You know, many of us, many of our children, you guys probably too, went to school and didn't learn about the true history of what happened to Indigenous people in North America. You know, and it was brutal. It continues to be brutal in so many ways. You know, you can see the effects of what happened in America um, with the policies of Andrew Jackson and the extermination policies um, playing out in the news today, right? You know, it's all still very much with us. And I feel privileged to be able to to document where we have been and what it's like for us now. And yeah, so that's sort of where my writing is at the moment. I just have to say, too, related to that, because I love nonfiction. I, I probably read more nonfiction than fiction. But one of the things that was new to me just recently was I had never heard of, I knew about the uh, residential schools, but I didn't know about the 60s scoop. So I'm just now learning about that. And so I agree with you, and especially in the U.S., you know, we're pretty ignorant about our own history and then certainly, unfortunately, about Canadian history. I'm just learning so much through so many Indigenous authors right now, and that's just been such a, a blessing. I've really loved having that opportunity. Mm, I'm glad to hear that. As you know, the United States also had residential schools all across the country, and uh just as a little bit of a side story, I was the uh, native in residence at the University of Minnesota, Morris campus. I think it was around this time last year, actually, for about four days. And there used to be a residential school on the university's campus. And the, it's amazing. So the University of Minnesota, they have a number of campuses, and this is uh, one of the smallest ones. And it's in the southwest corner of the state. It's near, actually, Fargo. You have to fly into Fargo to get there. And there used to be a residential school on the site of the Morris campus. And now, actually, as restitution, the University of Minnesota, and I'm very grateful for this, they offer free tuition for any Indigenous kids that want to come to the university. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, that's that's one way to have some level of reparation. I mean, gosh, wow. Mm -hmm. Okay, so our next question, uh, as a journalist then, how often were you able to write about Indigenous issues over the course of your career? Or was there a watershed moment that sort of opened that door? Mm, thanks for that question. It wasn't easy, you know. I remember, and I'm sure that journalists, Native American journalists will say the same things, there wasn't a huge appetite for any Indigenous news when I started in 1995. You know, I remember we had a reporter that covered Indigenous issues, but of course that reporter was not an Indigenous person. And it was seen mostly as a Western Canadian thing, which is kind of hilarious because there are more Indigenous people, like so many, living in the Toronto area and in Northern Ontario. And so there, yeah, there wasn't an appetite at all. It wasn't until quite a bit later, you know, it wasn't until 
the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report came out, and um, for your American listeners, that is the TRC. It was led by uh, Senator Murray Sinclair, who is an Anishinaabe man from um, Manitoba, and he he's a judge. He and the commissioners spoke to 6,000 survivors and witnesses to the residential school system and produced this incredible watershed report that all of these recommendations, calls to action, they were called, and that was published in 2015. There was a there was a government, you know, apology to Indigenous people. There was a, a massive payout to survivors, an acknowledgement, really, for the very first time of what had happened in Canada's past. And when that happened in 2015, things began to open up a lot. But it was in 2011 um, and 2010 that I was writing about Indigenous issues. I was pitching stories to my editors because I was at our provincial legislature, Ontario's uh, legislature, which was known as Queen's Park at the time, was a political reporter there. And I was more of a feature reporter. And they basically, my editor said to me, you know, pitch stories. And so I wanted to pitch stories about the North and about, about my people. And, you know, credit to the star for publishing those stories. You know, they didn't want a whole lot of them. But the one important story that they did very much want was the story of um, the seven fallen feathers. Um, I just want to back up for just a second before we get into that. But, you know, I know, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, but um, Pope Francis refused to apologize to the Indigenous people in Canada over the residential schools. And that was a shock to me because I thought, you know, the Canadian government apologized. And I know that, that, that sort of that next step was for the head of the Catholic Church to apologize. And he, he refused. And when I, when I heard that, I thought, wait a minute, what? He's supposed to be this progressive person in the church. And so I went back and looked up articles and really it just literally said, he said, no, he did. There was no reason behind it. So were you aware of that? Or what did you think when that happened? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was really sad. Oh, gosh, I'm now I'm having a now I'm having a moment. I can't remember her name. But I, I know a woman. Oh, my God, I want to say her name's Evelyn. Yes, her name is Evelyn. I can't remember her last name. And she has been she's a residential school survivor from St. Anne's, which is a notorious residential school. They had a um, homemade electric chair that they used to use on the students. She was a survivor of St. Anne's, and she has been sort of leading the charge to try and get the Pope to apologize. And she went to Rome, like, you know, it was just a huge deal. And of course, then the news came out that no way, there's no way they were going to do it. Yeah, you know, it's really horrible that in this day and age that that can't be done. You know, I, I, I don't know... You, you don't want to hear my thoughts on religion. <laughs> well, actually, feel free, truly, feel free. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't believe in the Christian churches. They've done a lot of harm to our people. I mean, when you, when you look at the history of the residential school system in, in Canada, they were all of, there were 139 of the schools. They existed from the mid 1800s to 1996. And they were all funded by the Canadian government, but they were run by the Christian churches. And you would be very, very, very hard pressed to find one student say, I love my experience at residential school. Almost everybody has stories of trauma, of 
abuse and many, you know, neglect. In some schools, the children were medically experimented on. Food was withheld. You know, uh, it was, they were horrible places. And sadly, the trauma of what happened to the children at the schools has gone down through the generations. And every single Indigenous person um, is touched by that. Yeah. In fact, I heard you in that homies chatting when you did the podcast with Jesse and Ian, which we can link to. Uh, you mentioned about your own grandmother that she just doesn't acknowledge, she just doesn't talk about any of that time period. Exactly. Yeah. So it's actually my great grandmother, and she raised my my mother and my great grandfather. Did uh, they both went to the residential schools? And yeah, she um, wouldn't speak of where she was from. She hated who she was, and she came out of the school a, a flaming Catholic to be honest with you. Yeah. You know, it's kind of funny because, you know, when you think about that experience and then, you know, African-Americans and Native Americans in our own country, and, you know, every time I hear people say it's time to get over it or something like that, it completely negates the intergenerational trauma. Like it didn't just affect those people. It affected every generation after that. And it makes me crazy when people can't see that perspective at all. Mm -hmm. That's very true. Very true. Okay. So let's jump in because I do want to talk about your books. Could you briefly kind of summarize for our listeners, Seven Fallen Feathers and All Our Relations? Mm. <laughs> Anyone's ever asked me, but I can, I could actually do that. So Seven Fallen Feathers is a story of seven First Nations youth who died while at high school in Thunder Bay between 2000 and 2011. Now the seven youth are all from remote fly-in reserve communities, uh, First Nations, about you know, 400, 500 kilometers outside of the city limits of Thunder Bay. And their communities that the kids are from, they do not have high schools. High schools or schooling ends basically at the end of grade eight. In some communities, they have grade nine. But if you want to pursue a high school education, which is the fundamental right of every other child, I would say, in North America, you have to leave your family, your home, your community, you know, everything you know, and your language, too. Most of the, of the kids, they um, did not speak English as a first language. And you leave your community and you fly by yourself when you're 13 or 14 or 15 to go to high school in a city called Thunder Bay, which is, uh, you know, you're a Great Lakes state. Thunder Bay is on the north shore of Lake Superior. So the story of the Seven Fallen Feathers is, you know, what happened to these children? And the question is, too, did, did the city of Thunder Bay kill, kill these children? You know, did Canada kill these children? Five of the Seven Fallen Feathers were found dead in the waters uh, surrounding um, Thunder Bay, in the rivers of Thunder Bay, and two died in their boarding homes. There was a, a very large inquest held into their deaths um, that concluded in 2015, and that inquest took a lot, a, a lot of fighting by Indigenous leadership to get that inquest. And as a result of the inquest, 
the deaths of four of the boys in the water are being reinvestigated by a multidisciplinary task force, police task force, because justice was never served in the first place. Um, when looking at the deaths of the boys, no one knows exactly how it is they got into the water. I should also tell you that before 2000 and after 2011, other First Nations people have died in the rivers in Thunder Bay. It's not something that just happened in those 11 years. So there's a, there's a lot in the book. The book talks about the city of Thunder Bay. The book talks about Canada. The book talks about Indigenous history, residential schools, and inequities, and how we have two tiers of people in this country. You have Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people. We're still fighting as Indigenous people for basic human rights on many levels, like having high schools or having clean water in some of our communities. Like right now, fighting a pandemic without clean water is uh, it's a very tough thing. Jobs, you know, access to the job market, access to, these are all uh, to housing, you know, safe housing, access to having parents who tuck you in at night and tell you that, you know, you matter and that you belong and they love you. Many of our children, you, you alluded you'd never heard about the 60s scoop, Many of our kids were, um, once the residential schools shut down, so what happened was all the survivors, you know, go back to their communities, and there are many people are very scarred from the experience and traumatized. And then the children of the survivors end up being taken away by child welfare authorities. And it just became a thing, right? And it's still very much a thing. So um, our kids are taken away and put into oftentimes white families. And that's called the 60s scoop. My mother's three brothers were part of the 60s scoop. And my sister was adopted out after she was one years old. So you have a lot of fractured families. And the trauma from all of those things really led to my second book. This is a very long <laughs> answer for you. but No, not at all. <laughs> it all led to my second book, which is called All Our Relations, Finding a Path Forward. And that very much deals with, with what has happened to our people. I started writing that book looking at suicide and why it is First Nations kids in our communities take their lives at such huge numbers. I mean, if you look at the suicide statistics when it comes to youth and teens, First Nations kids are often like, you know, three times more than other children non-Indigenous kids. So I started like ex examining where does this come from? And um, of course, you know, I, I, I knew the seeds are definitely in what's been happening to our, our families for generations. And that is, you know, you hear often too, like, I don't know if you're hearing it as much in the States, but it's been brought up here very much in Canada that we call this a, a genocide, what's happened to our people. And that's what all our relations is about. It's actually an extension, in a way, of Seven Fallen Feathers. Seven Fallen Feathers is very much about education and Canada's history, and all our relations is very much about what's happening to our kids, how our health system is nowhere near able to help them, because what's missing are basic human rights. Those social determinants of health that I was talking about earlier, clean water, access to an education, to health care, to safe housing, and to families. 
this is what you need to grow children, healthy children. And it's not rocket science. Yet we don't do that for our children at all on both sides of the border, our Indigenous kids. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is everything you're talking about. I mean, it, we haven't we haven't done uh, we've done the same job here, basically, as, as, as in Canada. So this isn't an indictment of one country over the other. It's we've it's been appalling on both sides for sure. I do have a question, though, and because when I was reading Seven Fallen Feathers, which, as I told you earlier, it just made such an impact on me. It's one of those books. And I have to just tell our listeners, I highly recommend that you read it because it's one of those books that will just stay with you forever. Like there are certain parts of it. I just and I'm a visual person. So when I read it, it, I just can't get certain things out of my head. And I'm also a geography major. So when I read books and especially nonfiction, I'll look up places and I actually traced a route that one of the mothers drove from the north all the way. And I actually literally watched the road that she probably traveled to get to Thunder Bay because it's just that's how much it resonated with me. But so here's my so here's my question. Is there any indication that the young people in Thunder Bay died at the hands of the same person or people? Because it's just so I, I just can't believe that it, it's, you know, you know, there's randomly like you say, before and after the book's time period, people have died. And who's doing it? Is there any indication that that anyone's has any idea, I guess? Well, hopefully the investigation is going to turn something out to that. And um, as you know, from the book, I do um, speak of the case of one, uh, one youth who was thrown into the water after being beaten up and left for dead. You know, and he managed to come to and crawl out and tell the story. And well, of course, Reggie Bushy's brother, Ricky Strang, in the book also survived and came out of the water. Who's doing it? You know, I wish I could tell you for certain I knew who it was. And I, you know, I don't, I don't know at all, to be honest with you. I mean, sometimes I, I think, is it gang violence? Is it racism? Is it who who knows? I mean, like, is it one person? Is it a group of people? We had in the just for your listeners, um, in Alberta, we had a series of of deaths. Uh, Neil Stonechild was someone who passed away. They were called the Starlight Tour murders or the Starlight Tour deaths. Members of the police would pick up First Nations people. Or if they had them in there, you know, um, they were like seen on the side of the road and, you know, causing a ruckus or whatever, or said to be causing a ruckus, they would pick them up and drive them out into the city limits and leave them there in, um, you know, minus 40 degree weather with proper coats and boots and everything else. There is a lot of uh, racism in Canada. There is in the States as well. And there's a lot of injustices. I think there are are multiple people who are responsible for the deaths of the kids. You know, I'm probably not going to pronounce this correctly, but the during the Wet'suwet'en sort of standoff that was just a few months ago now, I was reading some of the comments online that people were making, that just the out and out racist comments about Indigenous people. And I thought, you know, I, I was saying to my sister today, I think they should just turn comments off of everything because it doesn't serve any of us, either A, for people to be able to make those kind of horrible comments, and for those of us who obviously feel the opposite, to have to read them. 
But I, I was just, and again, I'm not shocked because, you know, it happens here. It happens in Canada. I get that. But it's almost like we are promoting leaders now that have made racism. Like when they lived under a rock, all these people, I was okay with that. But now everybody feels like they, the most racist voices get a platform and it's just made it a lot worse, I think, for us, for all of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, the comment sections are, I, I try not to read those. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I had a column at the star, I, I just left the star in December. And I often like on Twitter, I would just you can set your settings. So you don't see all the offensive comments. And I definitely do that. Yeah, I probably I try not to. But every once in a while, when something bad happens, I'll kind of look at a few. And then I just have to let it go. Yeah, I don't spend a lot of time, but I've seen too too much, I think. But well, I do want to talk about in all our relations, you, you know, obviously you discussed the rise of youth suicide rates in indigenous communities in Canada and beyond, not just Canada. And with the lack of clean water, high schools and job opportunities on the reserves, how can that trend be mitigated? Which I realize is a massive question, but how, how do we how do any of us start that process? It's a big one, isn't it? I mean, um, it's going to take political will to change how things are. And political will has to come from the people. It has to come from the citizens. Uh, it has to come from the people living in Michigan, the people living in Ontario. They have to want to see the change. They want to, uh, you know, to be that change. I think that education is such a key for all of it. I mean, teaching the correct history as to what happened in the United States, what happened in Canada is important. So that means curriculum changes in our schools, our elementary and our high schools to um, like often, I don't know what it's like in Michigan, but in Ontario schools, I mean, you know, residential schools, first off, you didn't hear about it in, as a student. And often too, if you would hear anything about indigenous people in your history book, it would be like a paragraph on the fur trade. It's, you know, things are, are changing very much, but there's still so much more that needs to happen. I mean, we recently had some curriculum changes here in Ontario. Actually, First Nations teachers and elders helped create a new high school curriculum with uh, proper Indigenous history. And our new uh, Doug Ford government made it an elective and not mandatory. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like that, like, you know, but if we're to change, like we have to start with the younger generation and change them. Because right now, if, if we don't teach the right history, we're raising the next generation of lawmakers and judges and police and nurses and doctors and editors who know the old history and grow up with the old preconceived notions of who Indigenous people are. You know, the, the, the myth of the noble savage. Like we're hanging, we were just hanging around in loincloths waiting to be saved before uh, contact. There's a, there's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. What, what about the issue of clean water though? Because I didn't realize that again, I came back to Michigan five years ago. And as I started to really um, sort of rediscover Canada for myself, I didn't realize that people have been living without clean water, you know, 20, 25 years. And it's just, I mean, is there no resolution to it or is the government just not wanting to pay or what is the issue with the lack of clean water? I know it's, it's pretty maddening, right? It's like hard to believe that in a country like Canada that's surrounded by like all the fresh water that you've got all the communities that have none. 
it's it's getting better. I think there's around uh, between 50 to 60 First Nations communities now without access to clean water, which is huge. But it's uh, it's come down a bit from what it was, and that's the latest government. It's a pledge by Prime Minister Trudeau. It costs money. You know, it's not just as simple as, you know, bringing up equipment and putting in some new filters to clean the water. It's a lot more than that. A lot of communities don't have infrastructure. You need to be able to build roads. You need to be able to construct. You need so many things in order to have a plant that's, that's there and working. And it costs a lot of money. Bringing up equipment costs a lot of money into a lot of these communities that are um, in the remote north. And power is another thing. Many of our communities are still on diesel generators instead of power lines. And even things like internet, you know, that is, that is coming now. You know, indigenous business people are now actually getting their own power systems through the north in Ontario. It's just, it's slow. It's slow to get there. But you need all of these things to also to have clean water. Um, and again, you need the political will of a country standing up saying, you know what, that's not okay. Yeah, you would think that would be the obvious one. But yeah, I want to talk about something maybe a happier, happier notion here. I know you're working on a podcast. And I wanted to know if you could talk about it a little bit and also about the documentary that you mentioned on the of the other Facebook Live uh, recording that you did. Thank you. Thanks for asking uh, about both those things. I know. And, you know, I always tell people it's, it's kind of funny. I, I'm really fun. You know, I'm really a fun person. I swear I'm fun at cocktail parties. I'm not like a complete downer all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the podcast is uh, it's for Audible and it's called Seven Truths. And it's based on the seven grandfather teachings that the Anishinaabe people uh, use and believe in to lead their lives. You know, those teachings are love, humility, respect, wisdom, truth, honor. These are beautiful ways that we live our life and we think about these, these truths every single day. And I tell contemporary stories each teaching, so each episode is about a contemporary story, something that's happening in Canada now that tells the truth of the teaching. So that's the podcast. Yeah, that's really exciting. And is that going to be, so if there are seven truths, is it going to just be a seven episode podcast or will it go beyond that seven perhaps? Yeah, the seven episode podcast and... I forgot one of the truths, and that was bravery. Bravery. I knew I was like counting on my hand as I was saying, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm missing one. I'm missing one. It's bravery. So uh, yeah, it's 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 great. You know, like I'm really excited about this podcast because I do a lot of speaking now, and I I never as a writer thought I would ever be doing speaking. That's part of the reason why I became a print journalist. So I didn't have to talk to anybody publicly, you know, other than to interview people. But strangely, I find myself in this life giving a lot of uh, speeches, um, actually, because of Seven Fallen Feathers in All Our Relations. And I'm, I'm, happy, I'm happy to do that, I should say, to represent and get out there. But it's, it's exciting. I love the podcast because it's an oral form of storytelling. 
And that's who we are as storytellers anyway, historically. And it's just nice to flex my muscle again, my writing muscle in this. And so I'm, I'm having a really good time doing it. Oh, that's fantastic. And then what about the documentary? I want to know about that too. So the documentary actually, um, and since you just got finished reading Seven Fallen Feathers, um, I hope you'll be really interested in the documentary. It's called uh, Spirit to Soar. And it is basically what has happened in the three years since the inquest into the deaths of the Seven Fallen Feathers. Where is Canada now? What's happening in Thunder Bay? And uh, it's a look at resiliency of our people and how we are our youth are amazing and they're still going forward pursuing their hopes and their dreams even though they're living you know in thunder bay and sadly our children are still dying in the water and when when will that be out and where will it how will it air is it in a is it in theaters or how will it how will it air it's a feature-length documentary, and it's going to be on CBC, a one-hour CBC TV special. And we're also cutting a, a feature-length film so it can be shown at festivals. So hopefully you'll be able to see it online somewhere, I think, in the fall. Yeah. Well, I, you know, one of the things I always do when I go to Toronto, there's this one movie theater I always go to that shows kind of art films. And I've seen a number of Indigenous films, which is really exciting for me. So probably when I go to Canada at some point, I'll be able to see it because uh, we can't see anything, unfortunately, here from the CBC. So oh, no. we don't have access. To it. I know we don't have we don't have access. <laughs> so <laughs> but trust me, the minute I know it's going to air somewhere and as, and as soon as the border reopens, I'll be there. I'll definitely be there because I, I want to see that uh, follow up. I'm, I'm really excited about that. Oh, thank you. I, I really appreciate your support there. Yeah. And then so our last question for you is, what gives you hope for the future of Indigenous people living on reserves specifically in Canada? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that I was kind of, when I, when I went to go do the documentary, I really wanted to do a story about hope and a story about the love and the honoring that happens in our, our families, um, you know, we always just hear such the tragic stories of what's happened um, and due in part to our, our history, you know, um, of what's happened to all of our families. But there is such hope and laughter and love in our communities and especially amongst our youth who are growing up now, you know, in another generation removed from the residential schools and they're growing up, you know, and we're, we're trying to teach them to be proud of who they are and where they're from and that they belong. And they come from a really, really proud history because, you know, when you look at it, the genocide against us hasn't really worked. We are still here, you know, and we're thriving now, you know, you can just see us, um, you know, you, you spoke to Jesse Thistle, uh, an incredible uh, mischief author and Cree author. We have so many people that are just doing so well and changing the narrative in Canada, our musicians, our artists, and we're making Canada a better place as a result. And I, that gives me a lot of hope. And I know that's going to happen in the States too. Well, Tanya, thank you so much. We we just really have enjoyed this opportunity to speak with you and uh, and everything that you're sharing with our audience. I know it will make people definitely want to read both of your books, no question. 
but thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. Kishi Miigwech. I'm, uh, I'm really honored, and Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you'd like us to continue providing great content like this, please like, share, comment, and tell all your friends about Canada Reads American Style. Bye.